Hello and welcome to my digital talk. Today's topic is the US-China systemic rivalry. And my guest is J. Kyle Bass, an American hedge fund manager. He is the founder and chief investment officer of Heyman Capital Management, a Dallas-based hedge fund focused on global events. Kyle, welcome. And it's a great pleasure to discuss with you the US-China systemic rivalry from the perspective of a hedge fund, a hedge fund uh, manager and investor. Thank you, Valina. Pleasure to be here. Now, we will start with uh, a political dimension before we dive into the financial and economic issues. As we've witnessed from um, the last several decades following the Soviet, the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, global affairs have become exceedingly complex as globalization has created intertwined networks of finance, trade, energy, economy, and so on, which merged into something what I call a global system. Now, more importantly, the global system encompasses these globalized networks of finance, economy, trade, and so on, that facilitate the vital and free flows of goods, capital, services, data, people, and many, many more. They currently operate within the framework of a significantly changing global order and an increasing global power competition next to a global pandemic, which has been um, more or less taking place for over one and a half year now. One already witnessed the immense stress that was put on this global system following the trade dispute between the United States and China during Trump's administration. And which this is the reason why I would like to discuss with you first and foremost, what is your assessment of the global political developments and the way how Biden's administration will engage uh, Beijing politically? What is also your anticipation for the political relations between Washington and Beijing? Uh, well, one of the key issues that I think is kind of lost in the media is the fact that, you know, while Trump, the Trump organization uh, was tougher on China than the prior, uh, let's say, four or five organizations, or maybe even more, uh, presidential uh, uh, cabinets, I think that the one place where Trump never went was, I think, the place where uh, uh, the West should really focus, which is uh, which is human rights abuses and the kind of uh, whether you're talking about the elimination of democracy and basic human rights in Hong Kong, or you're talking about the horrible, evil nature of the the internment and concentration camps in Xinjiang. Uh, and the live organ harvesting and, and those things of uh, the prisoners of conscience, you know, Trump never said the word human rights as far as it uh, relates to uh, how China operates uh, and how they operate around the world. And uh, the Biden administration has really stepped up with Secretary Blinken leading the charge uh, in, in basically standing on this, this pillar uh, of basic human rights. And it, and it just, what it does is it ends up shining a light, right? It ends up um, uh, focusing in an area of the, the differences, between the fundamental ideological differences between the Chinese Communist Party and the manner in which they operate around the world 
and I, what I call it the Western rules-based order, where we all agree to operate under certain rules and the rules of law, and we also respect basic human rights. And so fundamentally, those two systems are diametrically opposed to one another. And the globalists believe that we can just exist in some sort of uh, almost detente of, of, of any of our criticisms just so that we can have free flow of, of goods and services. And, and I think you and I know, Helena, that, that, that is a, that's a naive thing to believe. And what's, what we now see happening or developing is the Biden administration through, through the State Department and Secretary Blinken really stood up, stood up on human rights. And back during the Trump organization, I kept hearing uh, through the back channels that uh, you know uh, it was Secretary Mnuchin uh, who is, a, a, as you know, a friend of Wall Street, a former Wall Street partner. Every time Trump wanted to do something more uh, punitive uh, to China, uh, Mnuchin would tell him, you can't do that. China will disengage, the market will crash, and you'll never get reelected. So that's why you never saw, <clears throat> I think, the Trump administration really sanction Chinese entities like our laws say we should be doing. So it's a it's a, a so far what I see, I'm, I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm very hopeful that this will continue. Mm -hmm. And you also addressed an interesting phenomenon. Uh, so starting in the 70s with uh, this uh, absolutely unprecedented uh, phenomenon of uh, political, economic, trade entanglement between uh, China and uh, United States, which was called Chimerica. Now there is obvious um, dichotomy, uh, for instance, as you outlined uh, in the field of uh, human rights um, and uh, e as regards the rules-based order. Also, there is apparently a fundamental incompatibility between uh, totalitarian regimes, uh, which now also are capitalizing on the digitalization, on the fourth industrial revolution, uh, contrary to uh, the norms, rules uh, and standards of uh, Western uh, de uh, democracy. So do you anticipate in the long run, of course, a kind of a complete decoupling um, when it comes to the way how rules, uh, so global rules and norms are actually imposed on the relations between states? I, I, I do. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I think the fear-mongering that goes about um, the Wall Street crowd and the Fed, the Treasury, and, and even presidential cabinet uh, is oh if, if China decouples, we need China. We're too we're too intricately interwoven economically to kind of uh, excise the tumor, right? To to cut the Chinese Communist Party out of our trade relationships, out of our supply chains, out of our uh, um, universities, and all of the places where they have where they have uh, you know the tumor has grown in the United States and in the West. Um, there, there are too many, too many people that are fear mongers about that decoupling and what it would cause uh, our country. I, we believe at our firm that a full decoupling could cost two to two and a half percent of U.S. GDP. But if you just look at the DNI reports and the reports from DOD, uh, Department of Defense in the U.S., we believe China steals about two percent of GDP per year. Uh, in intellectual property theft and and uh, in the in the manner and the ways in which the Chinese Communist Party of China operates, uh, and then they earn a return on that every year. So uh, the way that we see it, it'll be a net plus 
for the U.S. to decouple from China. And we can get cheap T-shirts and tennis shoes from Vietnam and Cambodia and other places in Southeast Asia. Um, and the one place where we need to, where the U.S. must build its own um, very important, strategically and nationally important assets are in, of course, semiconductor uh, manufacturing. We rely entirely too much on Taiwan Semi, who, as you know, is only about 100 miles from the Chinese border. And uh, we're building wafer fabs as fast as we possibly can right now. So I think if you, if you, if you read the tea leaves, uh, we are trying to replace uh, those critical national security, national security issues in the U.S. as fast as possible or create them so that when we do eventually decouple, uh, it won't paralyze us in any particular vertical. So I, I think the tea leaves are telling you that that's eventually going to happen. Okay, now I would like also to remind uh, that uh, in a recent interview you did uh, for uh, CNBC, you outlined four, not one, but four wars actually that the US is fighting with uh, China. So out of these four potential wars, Three are already taking place, uh, one in the economic domain, one in data or digital domain, and one in cyberspace. And the only one that is still not being waged by military means is basically the kinetic war. So I would like to uh, start unpacking uh, this um, this uh, statement, which I think is very is, is, is in fact crucial for the future relations between uh, China and uh, United States, because it is a very comprehensive relationship that uh, took uh, decades to develop uh, to such an unprecedented uh, uh, context and way that it is now very hard also to uh, to to get decoupled. So let's start with the economic uh, dimension. Do you see actually uh, efforts? And you already outlined some. Uh, problematic issues such as dependencies on supply chains, uh, dependencies also on uh, manufacturing. Um, do you see actually potential or uh, already active efforts towards the coupling in the economic sphere? And given that uh, all countries are right now mostly concerned with the post-COVID-19 recovery. How, in what kind of time frame do you see actually um, a possible decoupling in economic terms? Yeah, the U.S. has invested so much capital through active investment in U.S. venture capital uh, and passive investment through China's working of the MSCI and the Bloomberg and all of the various passive indices, that, that money uh, from the U.S. has been the blood to grow the Chinese Communist Party's tumor uh, abroad. And I think that China um, had kind of orchestrated each of those uh, end routes uh, of capital into China. And now you have a very interesting phenomenon happening, as you saw first with Ant Financial, then you recently saw it with Didi, and now you're seeing it uh, kind of across the board coming from China's cyberspace uh, administration um, claiming that that uh, Chinese national security is at risk, and as you know, Belina, there's actually a law in China that prohibits foreign ownership of Chinese technology companies. Uh, and so, if you just think about the relationship and the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China, uh, we are open 
We are open door. We are open to them in almost every way. We allow them to own anything they want to own over here, but we can't even own a real share in a technology company over there. But what you're seeing now is China is really pulling it in and they're really worrying about uh, their own national security because everything that they do in the digital realm, they know it can be hacked and they know we can we can watch. Uh, and so the interesting thing about about the DD cancellation uh, is they know that we can break into the DD uh, algorithm and we can watch who's traveling where in China and we can understand what's happening over there. And they don't like that anymore. They love it when they can do it, but they, they basically can dish it out, but they can't take it. And that's what you're starting to see happen uh, over there. So when I think about the economic realm and I think about um, the, whether we're interwoven or whether we're at war, we've been at war with China since we let them ascend to the WTO early in 2001. You know, in the first six or seven years, we lost 4 million jobs here in the United States to China. And so when I think about those four wars, and you know, when I talk about the data war, what I mean is propaganda uh, and, and data. Cyber, cyber is a different dimension, right? Cyber warfare is, is different than propaganda warfare. But on the economic front, um, we've got uh, a war that's being waged on the United States and the West without us fighting back for the first uh, 15 years, right? Uh, we just started to realize that we're actually engaged in an economic war when our uh, when our steel capacity and our aluminum capacity uh, started uh, uh, when those businesses across the U.S. started uh, 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 basically ceding control to China uh, over time and our pharmaceuticals somehow the, the frog boiled over a long period of time. And as you know, like 95 percent of our active uh, pharmaceutical ingredients um, are made for antibiotics are made in China. Those things are crazy to allow to happen. Again, to, to start to excise the tumors from our system on the economic front uh, is going to take a long time. Uh, and it's, but, but if you notice in each of those verticals, we're already operating that way. Uh, the thing that China has, I think, uh, a leg up on the US on is, you know, they actually have an economic war department and we don't. Uh, we have a kinetic war department, arguably the best in the world. We have a cyber war department, top two in the world. We don't have an economic war department and we don't have a propaganda department. And China has war departments in both of those and they spend billions and billions of dollars on them every year. And so I think when we're talking about these four wars and we talk about the economic war, the economic, let's say ascension of China is what has powered their belligerence around the world economically, militaristically, and ideologically. And I think that the one thing that the world hasn't spent a lot of time focusing on is the fact that no one takes Chinese currency. No one trusts them and no one uh, uh, treats that as legal tender. They must have dollars, euros, yen, or pounds, and mostly dollars, just because that's the way the, the world, the global cross-border settlement network works. Uh, and so, Right now, I believe the West holds all the cards. And I believe that as we go into 2022, the economic war is going to dramatically escalate with the rollout of Chinese central bank digital currency. And I, and I think that is the largest threat to the West, uh, I, I believe economically, that we've ever faced. Before I elaborate uh, with you on the digital currency and on currencies, I would like 
to um, draw your attention on the fact that uh, China still thinks that it has one powerful friend in the United States, and that is Wall Street. Um, do you think that uh, financial, powerful financial companies, uh, so basically American, um, the, one of the backbones of American economy, are still interested in, um, well, in investing in uh, China and will be looking forward to actually a place of food uh, even now post-COVID-19. What is your anticipation? How actually can uh, Biden's administration or any future U.S. administration deal with this issue? Because I think that this is also one of the major problems that uh, very often it's no longer about national interests, but it's actually about transnational interests that go beyond state-to-state uh, -state relations. Yeah. You know, when we designated the Chinese Communist Party as a genocidal regime committing crimes against humanity, it forces, historically, what it's done is forced us to reevaluate all of the relationships we have and how we do business with a regime, again, that's committing a genocide and an, and an ethnic erasing uh, of any kind of uh, ethnic heritage and past uh, of, of any, again, of, of anyone that's not Han Chinese, essentially, but now we're talking about the Uyghurs, the Falun Gong, and, and even the Mongolians, right? Uh, but I think, I think from the perspective of, of um, you know, where where this is headed and how, what the Biden administration can do uh, to and should do is simply enforce the laws that are on the books. We know that HSBC has been operating as a criminal organization for a long period of time. We know that HSBC is the linchpin of capital flows between the West and China. And the fact that we won't sanction HSBC for their bad behavior, for their potential breach of the consent decree with the US Justice Department back in 2015, this, these are things that we have laws on the books, we have the data, and we know what's happening and we know what has happened, and yet we're reluctant to enforce those laws and sanction, let's say the big Chinese SOE banks, right? Uh, or the joint stock banks. Um, so if we were to sanction any of the Chinese SOEs or the, or the JSBs and or HSBC, which you've probably seen in the last few days, we're criticizing them publicly, um, that would change the entire relationship of trade, finance and investment with China. And we've given institutional investors enough time to either redeem their investments or curtail their investments or think about the risks that exist over there in China. Imagine if you were a fiduciary and you had escrowed money for Ant Financial's IPO or if you bought Didi's IPO without being able to know if the numbers you're seeing have any semblance of truth to them. And they have no audits, uh, no PCOB covered audits. And now you've got Xi Jinping risk. And um, how do you, how do you discount Xi Jinping risk? Because Valina, I have no idea how you do it, and that's my business. Um, and so I think when we when we enforce our laws, what we need to do as the West is we have laws on the books. Let's use our rule of law against the bad actors. You know, we have laws that are supposed to um, stop bad behavior or penalize bad behavior. 
and we're not willing to enforce those laws because of the larger consequences geopolitically of the enforcing of those laws. What we need to do is stick to our laws, and that's how we beat uh, a bad actor like China. It's interesting that uh, China has announced to open its financial markets to uh, foreign companies, including American ones. Uh, of course, it's a long road uh, ahead, but still, uh, are you buying these uh, announcements? Do you really think that uh, foreign financial institutions, including American ones, are actually will actually get the chance to uh, to you know to become part of uh, actually for of, of Chinese uh, capital markets or or is this just an announcement that has more or less political rather than realistic uh, repercussions? Yeah, you know, if you look at underwriting fees in the U.S. today, so with Chinese listings, uh, uh, so sorry, U.S. listings of Chinese companies, whether it's Hong Kong or China based, let's just call them China, Chinese companies, um, it, it, it basically contributes today. 12 to 15 percent of Wall Street's revenue, and it is their largest growth area. Uh, so Wall Street and the bankers can't wait to take another Chinese company public because the, it, it's not their job to protect national security of, of, the, of, U, of the U.S. It's not really their job even to opine on whether buying a fantasy football VIE share of a Cayman sub of a Chinese company is a good idea. They just are the conduit. They put it out there, and if people buy it, they buy it. Uh, and so, if again, I've said this before, if if uh, if U.S. national security were left to Wall Street, we'll all be speaking Chinese tomorrow, uh, right? So I think we need to be very careful about that. But what the Biden administration can do is actually enforce some of our laws, and and one of them is, you know, you, you, we have our securities firms setting up offices now in China looking for Chinese underwriting M&A, uh, IPOs, and you're asking if that's something that's real if I buy it. One of the key caveats to the establishment of U.S. investment banking wholly owned subsidiaries in China with no JV partner is all of the data of all of the clients has to reside in China on Chinese servers and the Communist Party, as you know, will have members of the Chinese Communist Party in the offices sitting in the compliance of these firms and they will be able to review all customer data uh, and it can never leave China. Well, you know, basically swim at your own risk is the way I think about that. Mm -hmm. Now let's move to currencies. Uh, uh, we are still in the financial domain and in the monetary domain. China's uh, Sichuan province announced uh, and ordered, in fact, a halt to mining in June which meant nearly 90% of uh, China's Bitcoin mining capacity or over 50% of the global capacity, um, which basically resulted in being shut down. Now, crypto firms are meanwhile selling their hydropower equipment in China, and given the last crypto hype we uh, experienced globally with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, uh, it was um, quite of a shock. Now, how do you place all of this um, in the context of uh, Chinese efforts to establish and impose uh, 
basically a state-owned, a state-regulated um, digital currency, which is already uh, actually being introduced in several big uh, cities in China. Um, is this to be seen as part of China's efforts to internationalize uh, its own currency? What is your, actually, what is your assessment about these current developments? How do you see also China's currency's role in the future? As we know, the share of traded yuan is still very, very low. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think below 4% globally. Uh, anyway, it is, uh, they are still not there yet <laughs> where they want to be. How do you anticipate uh, actually these developments in terms of uh, future plans uh, by the government? Well, you know, when you when you talk about private crypto and what China's done to crack down on the Bitcoin miners, you know, China has a uh, uh, a real issue with its power grid, and these Bitcoin miners take huge amounts of power to produce something that's not really productive uh, a productive asset I mean it's a uh, it's a uh, it's something can be sold for real dollars so I think China views that as being semi-productive but uh, that if you remember there were there are entire blackouts of Iranian cities uh, because of the Chinese Bitcoin mining operations there <clears throat> the key input to Bitcoin mining is power uh, to run the the computers and the cycles that that do the mining and so what you're seeing China realize is that all of this power is being produced by basically coal-fired power plants. And so they're burning coal to produce Bitcoins, but more importantly, the, the Bitcoin miners are stressing the grid. So China's kicking out the miners uh, to places, believe it or not, like Texas, which I'm sure you saw a recent article written uh, on this. I've actually been to the facility uh, where Bitmain moved to uh, and you, you can't believe how much power is taken to just produce Bitcoin. 750 megawatts of power, $55 million a year spent on power at wholesale rates by one simple Bitcoin mining operation. Just think about all of the Bitcoin mining operations and how much power they pull from the world. Uh, it's, it's truly remarkable. So I believe I believe that separate the power issue is separate and distinct from the digital currency issue. I don't think those two are are currently interwoven or, or at odds with one another. I think the power issue is simple. They don't want them pulling the power off the grid uh, in China, so they need to go do it somewhere else. So they're trying to find hydropower is the cheapest, or you know, they're trying to find the cheapest power on the world uh, to set up these mining operations. So I believe as the central bank digital currency is introduced. It's China trying to legitimize itself and also take its Orwellian uh, centralized operation uh, that is internal to China and export that to the rest of the world, right? I say they'll be able to export their digital authoritarianism if they can get directly to you, Valina. If you accept the digital RMB uh, as payment for something that you do or, or a service you provide or a good that you want to sell, then it sits in your bank account or your company's bank account, and China will actually know everything about you. They will know how you spend the money. They will know when you were born, what your social security number is. They will know uh, everything about your proclivities and what you spend and how you spend it. 
And then if you criticize the Chinese Communist Party, they might take some of that money away from you because at a push of a button, they can they can take that out of your account. They can also incentivize you like they have places like the Atlantic Atlantic Council and Brookings and the East West Institute and the Carnegie Endowment uh, for, for international peace, how Chinese money is flooded think tanks and they flooded influencers and those people become evangelical about the, the benevolence and greatness of China. They will be able to do that on a much more global scale because they can actually send money directly to you through a QR code outside of the banking system, outside of SWIFT, outside of anyone's ability to sanction their activities. It basically is, a, I call it a digital cancer. It's a digital cancer that the West actually can't adopt even uh, on a trial basis. You right? You either have cancer or you don't. And I think we can't allow that cancer to happen. And, and it, we're facing that here in, in less than a year's time. It's interesting that um, Rajiv Malhotra um, wrote a book on artificial intelligence and the struggle for power, and he called this a digital colonization. So yeah. basically, a way how you actually make um, not necessarily partners. <laughs> it only suffices to be to for you to be in some kind of relations with these countries, uh, but uh, you make them dependent uh, by extracting all the data from them. And we are observing already this kind of uh, digital colonization, where of course when you don't play by the rules. Um, you can also um, create a pool of um, unimaginable pool of data where you can actually, um, well, make uh, your algorithms work better. Then you can sell also these this algorithms, for instance, when it comes to fa facial recognition. You can sell them to third countries, which is the case, meanwhile, with African leaders who try to sustain power and uh, using this kind of services, this kind of products. So uh, this is probably, this also fits into the narrative that which you outlined at the beginning with uh, this kind of decoupling, political decoupling, where there will be two systems, one playing by the rules, or at least the rules-based uh, order that has been established for the last 70 years with uh, allies, with like-minded countries, and one that is, you know, being in emergence. Uh, China-led system with, do you foresee this kind of scenario where you we, we will end up with uh, a China, China-led um, alternative system which will be established along all these uh, most important pillars of finance, monetary, economy, uh, trade, uh, with of course partners that are dependent uh, on uh, China in one way or another. Take for instance Pakistan, as an example, or Russia, which is also increasingly becoming dependent on China in political and economic terms. Do you foresee this kind of uh, future scenario? Yeah, I mean, if you just think about the countries that are, quote, aligning with China or however you want to put it, you know, you mentioned the digital colonization. I, we, the, Whoever they colonize will be a digital concubines, right? They'll be of lower status. They will be a deferential, they will basically do whatever China forces them to do. But but also when you think about who their who China's friend, friends are, uh, right? You've got Maduro in Venezuela, you've got Putin in Russia, you've got you've got Pakistan, 
You've got, in recent days, we've seen the Taliban welcomes China and welcomes their investment and will protect them while they're in uh, Afghanistan. You see, if you line up, uh, if you were to just, just look at the list of China's friends, uh, it's birds of a feather. It's authoritarian, tyrannical, dictatorial governments, right, uh, that like to control their entire population and eliminate or, or, or completely ruin any basic human rights in these countries. And so it, I actually, the way that I see the world polarizing is the rules-based good guys in the West uh, and the authoritarian, again, tyrannical, dictatorial uh, uh, governments of, of China's and their friends. Uh, and, and I think that if you just look at the world, that's what's happening as we speak, Valina, and it's only going to continue that way. And, and you mentioned Africa. These resource-rich, uh, very poor countries have always had kleptocracies, right? Their, their governments uh, have always been, their, their, their senior leadership have been the richest people in, in, the, in the country. And uh, they build marble palaces and giant swimming pools for themselves while their population starves to death. Uh, and, and all China's gonna do is, is put that on steroids. It's going to allow them to keep that control over those populations. So I, 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 I sound like um, I'm not optimistic. I'm very optimistic about the rules-based West and technology and human innovation and education and everything that the West does so well. Uh, and I'm really uh, not optimistic at all about where China's heading and who, and who they're taking with them. Mm -hmm. And we are also in the middle of a fourth industrial revolution, uh, one that is uh, unique in a sense that uh, uh, we are witnessing a kind of a merger between the public and the private sector. So the innovation is no longer coming mostly from state, uh, from the state, from the public sector, but it's coming predominantly from the private sector. So take space exploration, take uh, various technologies, um, digitalization. So there is definitely the case uh, on the side uh, of the West, but uh, given the merger of uh, these structures uh, in China, given that China is a state, actually, capitalist system. How do you how do you see the role of um, of uh, certain pillars such as, for instance, PLA, uh, the Communist Party? Uh, PLA is basically for our viewers who are not uh, aware. Um, is actually the uh, the um, the army, the the armed forces of China. Um, so how do you see their role in innovation in the in the actually in the competition over who is going to write the fourth industrial revolution who is going to emerge as a winner out of it as we know uh from the previous waves of uh, industrial revolutions um it was the case with the united states and previously with great britain that they were the winners in the competition uh, over over the supremacy, over the more or less the domination in this uh, specific in the technological uh, field, which also gave them enormous enormous advantages over competitors. So, do you 
think we are going to witness another competition also between United States and uh, China in the technological domain and uh, how how should investors also prepare for that? Should investors actually uh, plan to invest in technological uh, innovation coming out from China in the future or should we really say okay this would mean that we help also uh, the uh, basically the, the, the state authorities. We help basically China to emerge as technological uh, hegemon um, uh, due to this investment. So it's a very tricky question, I know, but uh, it's up to you to decide how to answer it. It's actually pretty easy, Helena. I mean, uh, how do you invest in a, in a technology? First of all, it's illegal to invest directly in Chinese technology, so you have to buy a share in a company that is a shell company in the Cayman Islands and you're playing essentially fantasy football with China. If anything goes poorly, if the company starts doing poorly, you have no claim to their assets whatsoever. Um, that's if I, if I explain that to you all on a, all on a whiteboard today, you'd look at me and, and I would say, okay, Belina, I think you should put a lot of money into this. You would look at me and call me crazy. Um, right? So I think people don't even know what they're really doing. Number one, in, investing in China. Uh, but look, China as a government and as, as a kind of monolithic organization, uh, because we all know the military and civil fusion uh, is, is kind of a, a rule and a way of life there. So I kind of treat it all as one. Uh, uh, you know, when you, when you look at how they've acquired a lot of their technology, they've stolen it. And uh, what real economy has ever had a closed capital account? Right, they they have they have what I call a roach motel. You're allowed to send money in, but good luck getting it out. Many of the multinational companies that have profits in China can't wire the money out. China won't allow it to come out, so they have to keep investing in PPE and and uh, things in China, hoping that one day maybe China might let some of that money out. Uh, imagine if that's really how you're investing. If your if your fear of missing out is so great that you convince yourself that investing in that kind of architecture and lawless uh, uh, country with at the whims of, of their supreme leader is a good idea, then I just think you haven't thought this all the way through. I would rather invest in Europe or in the, or in the United States where we have some of the greatest universities in the world. We have the most, they have the best innovators in the world. We have the best technology in the world, and China just aspires to either copy it or steal it, uh, and then develop it, uh, you know, from there on their own. So, Belina, uh, look at look at one. Just look at a couple of the empirical data. There are 460,000 Chinese students in U.S. universities today. There are less than 15,000 U.S. students in Chinese universities today. So, China pretends to have the better model. And yet, even Xi Jinping sent his daughter to Harvard, uh, right? So just think about what they say and then what they actually do. How many Chinese elite do you know that can't wait to invest more of their money in China and send their kids to Chinese universities? I don't know many. They can't wait to get their money out of China and send their kids to the U.S. and give them uh, a better education. So and Europe for that matter. I mean, you look at some of the top educational in institutions in the world and they are in the in Europe and the US. And so I it it's so obvious to see if you just put it all on a whiteboard, but the narrative, that narrative that China delivers 
is key. And their propaganda department, as you've probably seen on a daily basis, you and I frequently interact. We see Chinese propaganda, whether it's coming out of the People's Daily or whether it's coming out of, of Xinhua or any, any of these other new, news organizations, news propaganda organizations uh, that are official out of China. Uh, we live in a post-truth world. Whoever can develop the best narrative wins. And again, the US and Europe might need to fund a narrative or propaganda department to fight the crazy disinformation that comes out of the Chinese, you know, state-owned media. So I think if you just look at the facts, Melina, the facts tell you, forget about what the Chinese say, look at what they do. And uh, I will use the opportunity also to uh, point to two significant uh, facts. The one is that China's Communist Party branches have been set up inside Western companies. Um, and the second is that the Chinese Communist Party has an international branch consisting of almost 450 parties in the world, which of course means that once they want to engage politically with a certain country ABC, they reach out to this international branch where there is a member, a party member, and this is how they actually have kept uh, stability uh, in uh, political relations or have reached out to, for instance, to uh, deepen economic uh, and trade ties uh, by addressing directly you know, the right people at the right, uh, in the right places. Uh, so this is something that is all, all very often overlooked. Um, and uh, um, regarding the example you gave with, uh, you know, uh, the daughters and the sons of communist leaders going to study abroad. This was absolutely the same case during the Soviet time when actually all communist leaders were keeping cash in dollars, which is absolutely non-fact, and were sending their daughters and sons to Harvard, so to United States, uh, most preferably, of course, or uh, to other um, uh, prominent uh, Western universities. Nothing new under the sun. Of course, what, of, what is new is, as you said, uh, the lack of, um, of, uh, of um, actually of an adequate tool to deal with the propaganda and also to deal with the cyber. Uh, domain because as you said propaganda is on the one side uh, all these kind of disinformation campaigns on the other side um, of the coin uh, we have also all the cyber hacks uh, private in private or public uh, sector which is going to definitely increase with uh, with the rise of tensions uh, between Washington and Beijing now you also said uh, investors should look away from China and move to other partners. So what would be your list of most preferred uh, like-minded countries or interesting destinations all over the world where uh, USA can also build solid and stable relations in the future, given the decoupling? Well, I look, I mean, clearly, Europe is clearly our friend. Uh, the UK and Europe uh, are I think rules-based, like-minded, fighting climate change, fighting human rights abuses, and believe it or not, we've started to see unity, uh, uh, you know, amongst many uh, sovereign nations uh, fighting 
uh, those things. And, you know, China's the worst offender in human rights. They're definitely the worst offender in, in, uh, in, in climate change and emissions. So uh, I think the Daily Mail put a piece out today that says China has 23 of the worst polluting 25 cities in the world. The only two that are on the top 25 that aren't Chinese are Moscow and Tokyo. Uh, and so uh, I, I think that when you look at, at uh, like-minded rules-based systems uh, that prioritize human rights, uh, those are who our friends are. Uh, and if we can open ourselves to other non-authoritarian governments that might start to operate in a rules-based human rights uh, based fundamental organization, then, then I think uh, all of those people can be our trade partners and friends. Again, ideologically, I think the fundamental incompatibility between the authoritarian communistic system and the free trade uh, rules-based West, I, I just don't think it can coexist for much longer. And we're already seeing those cracks develop. Final question on my side, um, uh, given that uh, China has taken over Hong Kong for, uh, for in just over a year, if I'm not wrong, um, turning it, and I quote you actually, uh, from thriving metropolis to military state. So aside from this development, what are the three developments that keep you awake when it comes to China? Yeah, I mean, the, the big one is, is what's China going to do with Taiwan? We've seen their militaristic belligerence increase uh, almost daily. Their incursions into Taiwanese airspace with the larger and larger uh, 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 squadrons of bombers and fighters. Uh, we've seen their rhetoric and their propaganda departments really dial up the quote, unification of Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan doesn't want to be, quote, unified. They're their own sovereign nation. And China's claim that Taiwan is disputed by the rest of the world. Uh, and I think that uh, what they do with Taiwan uh, keeps, I think, keeps a lot of people up at night. And, uh, you know, I think that Taiwan's particularly vulnerable uh, today uh, in the face of, of Chinese aggression. And the question, the, the big question is, what will the U.S. do? We saw just a week or two ago, Japan made a formal pronouncement uh, stating that if China were to move uh, kinetically on Taiwan, that Japan would defend the, ta the Taiwanese interests. Uh, China's had a plan for a long time. If you read uh, Unrestricted Warfare and you've read uh, about Admiral Liu, and the plans for the first island chain and the second island chain and, and uh, where they want to be by certain, uh, what milestones they want to achieve by certain dates, they're kind of behind their game already. Uh, and so I think that Japan stepping up and saying that, uh, you know, with, with Article 5 protections uh, that the U.S. has afforded Japan post-World War II, um, the question is, what will we do? What will Europe do? What will the U.S. do? What will the UN do, or the UN's kind of a neutered force anyway. Uh, but what will the big Western powers do uh, if China moves on Taiwan? That that keeps me up at night, and I promise you that keeps the Taiwanese up at night as, as well. Uh, so hopefully uh, the Chinese militaristic uh, belligerents won't uh, assimilate Taiwan 
Uh, you know, if you look at Hong Kong, uh, it's just too coincidental that the protests were at their peak. Uh, it was the existential threat to the Chinese Communist Party. And then uh, magically, this uh, virus showed up and shut Hong Kong down and allowed the Chinese authorities just to turn it off. Uh, I, that sounds conspiratorial, but it just looks like it was perfectly planned to me. Do you see a light in the tunnel post COVID-19 in a sense of economic growth or are we going to are we going to continue with the with the economic stagnation and trade uh, actually stagnation that we were witnessing uh, prior to COVID-19 because let me let me remind for our viewers, of course, and our listeners, that we were already in a kind of a recession uh, scenario uh, prior to COVID-19. Or are you buying all these positive and very optimistic uh, uh, scenarios and outlooks by the International Monetary Fund and so on, <laughs> that yeah. we are going to witness growth and uh, and 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 uh, it, well, they're quite uh, quite optimistic. Altogether, well, I, I think if you look at the amount of money that was printed by the world central banks to basically countercyclically spend into uh, the the Wuhan debacle, uh, I think that uh, in nominal terms you're already seeing right uh, GDP's crack to new highs. In real terms, right, it, it call it nominal returns less real inflation. Uh, we still have we still have negative. Uh, we still have negative real growth, uh, but it's just because we're inflating our way out of the problem. So if the world reopens and we put this horrible uh, disease and virus in our rearview mirror, um, yeah, I think we'll grow like crazy uh, in nominal terms. In real terms, I'm, uh, I, don't, I think we'll be back to some kind of global trend line. Uh, but the amount of money in the system, as you know, has kind of retarded the differential in, in asset prices. And it's made, I don't know about in Austria, but in, in the US, everything's much more expensive than it was a year ago, incredibly expensive. Um, we think the real inflation number, if you didn't chain weight it, and that's for another day, uh, is at least 12% in the US alone. If you look at Germany's uh, year over year numbers, uh, they've already printed 11.8% uh, uh, year over year inflation. So I, I think our numbers spot on. Uh, and I think it's probably worse than that in certain areas. So, so yeah, do I buy it? Yeah, nominal growth is going to be pretty spectacular just because of the amount of money that's been printed. Real growth is going to be elusive, uh, I think, for years to come. Yes, and indeed, inflation is a is a real issue in Europe as well. However, the political decision makers are not trying to address it in order to not cause a panic because yeah. the expectation is that there will be uh, a next lockdown due to the Delta variant, which also means that there will be further, um, you know, jobless people and so on. So it, in reality, political decision makers are trying to scale down the problem, which is a real one, as you outlined. Now, I will use the final minutes we have left uh, for a few questions coming from the chat. For those uh, early birds uh, on your side of the Atlantic, or maybe uh, on this side of the Atlantic, who decided to join us during the live stream, of course, the digital talk will be available afterwards as well. Uh, so there is a question, why is China tightening their lending so much, so quickly? 
Is it an attempt to become more compliant with um, the U.S. regulators? What, the what question, if you don't mind, restate it, Belina. I didn't understand what you said. Yes. So once again, why is China tightening the lending so much so quickly? Is it an attempt to become more compliant with regulators, with American regulators, or what? What is your reading? If you have a, if you have an opinion, of course, on this uh, question. Yeah, when you look at China's uh, banking system, uh, post financial crisis 2008, China expanded its banking system 50% of GDP per year, every year for seven years. Just think about that for a second. Imagine if the US that has, we have roughly a $21 trillion economy. Imagine if we lent $10 trillion of new money into our banking system in one year's time. And we did it every year for the next five years. What you would do is create, you'd create meteoric nominal growth, right? Who knows what real would be? Uh, but you can't have that kind of binge on free credit from all of the banks and not have a significant recession. When you look at what's happening in the various regions of China today, you're seeing many bank failures uh, in, in the, you know, their, their SOE banks, their 12 joint stock banks, then their, you know, 10,000 or so uh, uh, local banks. You're seeing many, many, many bank failures because of this expansion of credit. And think about the fraud that's in that system. The expansion of credit that's happened has been unprecedented in the history of the world over the last uh, 12 years in China. And so you've seen asset prices in China move to where, as you probably know, that you've seen the birth rate decline in China and it's a real question mark for the regime. So therefore, they're, not only did they abandon the one child policy, they're going to two or three children now and they're encouraging that. But what's happening is the price of housing has gotten so far out of the reach of the average, you know, there are 1.4 billion Chinese where 400 million of them have kind of risen out of the, the, the poverty class into the middle class. There's still a billion that are, that are poor and the price of everything has gone up so much that now everyone's living with their parents and no one's marrying and having kids and living with their parents. And so there, when you start act playing God and printing money at the central bank level and thinking you can control everything, or I like to, give the spinning plates analogy. When you have 50 plates spinning, you're trying to hold them all and keep them spinning. Uh, when one plate stops spinning, you're gonna have a lot of trouble dealing with the rest of the other 49 plates. And so I believe that the reason you're seeing the birth rate decline and growth slow pretty dramatically is again, this asset price phenomenon has gotten China out of whack. And so I think they, are, they need to stop the uh meteoric lending rates and start to deal with some of the excesses in their system it it makes complete sense because it threatens the regime itself you remember she said financial security equals national security just a couple of years ago and they started focusing intently on that and we'll see uh what what happens but uh you you, you, you if you prevent forest fires for 12 years by printing money and then there's a spark somewhere the whole forest is going to burn down uh, what you should be doing is letting these fires happen periodically and clearing the underbrush so that you have a much more stronger and stable system. China hasn't allowed that to happen, and we'll we'll see what happens when a spark when a spark hits their forest. 
Um, I see also a question I personally don't understand, but I will read it to you. Maybe you have an idea. Do you think that progressively areas will try to build intranets versus internet? Yeah, so um, the answer is yes. And I think that, for instance, there is a, there's a company here in the United States that, that believes that an EMP hardened system, i.e. Uh, electromagnetic pulse hardened, uh, intranet instead of an internet uh, is, is is vital to the national security of our country from a first responders perspective and from a from a, again from a militaristic and first responders perspective that is it is a given that we need a closed network that China can't access uh, for communicating and and I think countries like the U.S. and Poland and others are already in full full steam ahead. And building those intranets, and I think, I think you'll see those uh, you'll see those built in many of the Western countries around the world in the next, call it three to five years. It's actually not that expensive to build, um, given the architecture of the networks that already exist. Adding more EMP uh, hardened uh, hardware is pretty easy to to distribute those networks. Mm -hmm. Final question for our session. Do you think that China is also seeking to decouple from United States, given that uh, now there is the anticipation for uh, rather consumption-oriented economy uh, facing a, a growth in the middle class, not just in China, but in Asia? Do you think that China also pursues a similar approach to decouple from Washington? I think they want to project to the world that that is something they're thinking about. But when you think about uh, a parasite uh, and a host, uh, China is a parasite to the host because, again, they have a closed capital account. They must have access to currency that the world actually accepts as legal tender. So they can pretend that they want to be, the, you know, decouple from the host uh, and basically create their own uh, world in Southeast Asia and/or amongst the other call it miscreants around the world uh, that they're aligning with, with Venezuela, North Korea, and uh, Russia and North Africa. Um, uh, but but I, don't, I don't believe it's even, uh, again, it's what they say, it's not what they do. Uh, they'll say that they're strong enough to consider decoupling, but it is the last thing that they want because their world will collapse if they lose their access to dollars. Yes, and my anticipation is that uh, Biden's administration will also seek to kind of soften the approach, at least for now, at least for a first term until it's settled, until it's known that they, he, he or a predecessor can win a second term. So it's not in the interest of this administration to also intensify the tensions, at least on political arena, arena or in military terms. So I suppose that it is a kind of a win-win situation for now to keep it at the level of status quo, to prepare accordingly rather than to um, to antagonize the competitor. But uh, we will see uh, what is uh, what the future brings, right? I am um, grateful for your insights and I want to thank you for being with me for over 60 minutes um, and I wish, of course, uh, much success with all your future plans. Thank you, Kyle, thank for you, staying Lisa. with us. Thank you for your time.